Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Zero. I'm Shane Petkowitz. Wow, it's been uh, it's been quite some time. Uh, thanks for everyone for the patience. Um, very excited to off bring to you another episode. Uh, just a little bit of an update. Um, the last few months have actually been a little bit wild from a work perspective. So um, wasn't able to get to the season as quickly as I'd like. But uh, fear not. The the most of the episodes I have now uh, recorded and uh, will be coming out. There's actually going to be a particular theme for this third season, um, which I can speak to towards the end uh, of this episode. So hold tight and then we, we can talk about it at the, at the end of the episode. But uh, there will be a kind of a new theme trying to do a different approach to compare to the first two seasons. Um, but I'm super excited. It should be coming out within the next couple of weeks. And I'll, I'll, I'll keep you posted. One other piece of information that uh, I also am excited about is that uh, finally dipping my toes, uh, at least for the podcast, into social media. So if you are interested in following along or commenting or just having a communication, <laughs> um, feel free to do so. I have uh, Twitter, uh, Instagram, and LinkedIn accounts now for the podcast, all typically under the name of Zero Podcast Zero. That would be zero spelled out podcast and then the number zero. That information you can also find in the uh, description of the podcast uh, online. So you should be able to find those accounts there. Feel free to comment. Uh, um, actually really interesting to hear what you have to say about these episodes. And uh, for for today, uh, very excited. Um, going to really be able to do a, a deep dive into the world of recycling and secondhand. Have a super exciting speaker um, join. Uh, his name is Adam Minter. Um, and he's had an amazing background uh, and spent almost his whole life involved in the scrap uh, scrap business, the recycling uh, market, the recycling sector, and most recently the secondhand sector. So it brings a wealth of knowledge and really insightful uh, um, and, and thoughtful um, recommendations on how recycling can be improved and how it how it provides benefits to to the entire world really uh so adam inter he is a columnist with bloomberg opinion <clears throat> he writes about emerging markets technology waste and other topics he actually lived in shanghai from 2002 to 2014 and he covered the trans-pacific trade and recycling which was booming back then he then continued his coverage from kuala lumpur and has was based there from 2014 until about covid He's written a number of books. Uh, first is Junkyard Planet, Travels in the Billion Dollar Trash Trade. I've read that book, super, uh, in, uh, really enjoyed it. Highly recommend it. You should, if you wanna learn anything more about the billion dollar trash trade, check it out. He actually came out with a recent book called Secondhand, Travels in the New Global Garage Sale. And that's a deep dive into the secondhand economy. So if you think about uh, things like Goodwill or donating clothes or reuse, that's something that he's, um, that he's uh, he recently published, and I'm excited to get my hands on it and, and start reading. So, really uh, interesting episode. I uh, hope you enjoy. I I come from uh, a long line of of recyclers, and by that I don't mean people with uh, green bins or blue bins or whatever color it is. Uh, wherever your listeners are, um, my family, uh, uh, my father's side of the family first came to the U.S. in the early part of the 20th century um, uh, from uh, southern Russia um, uh, in the uh, area of uh, Kiev, actually. And uh, and like a lot of immigrants to a lot of places who, you know, don't have the local language of the place where they're 
coming to, and in our case, we we ended up in Galveston, Texas to start with, um, they went into the, the one entrepreneurial opportunity that you kind of have, which is uh, picking up garbage, recycling, waste, rags on the streets. And that's what they did in um, Galveston. Uh, my, my great grandfather, Abe Leader, he uh, started out just picking rags off the streets of uh, Galveston, Texas and reselling them to people who recycle um who recycle textiles. So he was a textile recycler uh, long before uh, there was actually the word recycling, which only emerged about four decades after he started doing it. Um, uh, he eventually moved up to Minneapolis and uh, became a, a scrap metal recycler. I mean, uh, really any kind of recycler, but scrap metal uh, tends to be the more lucrative. And uh, his business really took off during World War II when there was huge demand uh, for metals. And uh, and so his business um persists um, as a few different uh, very small businesses uh, in the Twin Cities area primarily. And uh, I grew up um, around those businesses, um, you know, as a very young child. Uh, some of my earliest memories are just being in a warehouse looking at bales of, of non-ferrous metals, recycled metals. Um, you know, as a child, I worked in uh, some of those warehouses, um, you know, uh, cleaning metal, which by which you mean it's not polishing, but, um, you know, if a plumber brings in a bunch of scrap metal, um, you know, the valves are made of different types of metals. And so uh, to recycle that, you need to separate those metals. And, and that's what I did. It's the kind of work, you know, you see pictures of it these days and and uh, it, maybe it's a, a small child in India or uh, somewhere in, in West Africa or or somewhere in, in South Asia, um, you know, someone 10, 11 years old cleaning scrap metal, you'll say it's a human rights violation. But for us, it, it was the family business and there's no human rights involved. I mean, it's, you know, you're feeding the family. So so that's sort of my background. And it's it's why I'm interested in the industry and, and very uh, sympathetic to it. Absolutely. And that's a, that's a uh, fascinating upbringing. At the time, in a world with uh, where, where you didn't have any human rights as a 10-year-old cleaning cleaning uh, metal, did you enjoy it? Or was it a chore? Did you Oh yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, clean metal, you know, again, I, and again, I don't want to make it sound like a, you know, um, you know, I was working 15 hour days. Um, I certainly wasn't, but, um, you know, a cleaning metal, I mean, literally it's, it's, it's plumber scrap and maybe I've given the job to unscrew the bolts, you know, while I sit in my dad's office. Um, you know, um, it's, it's kind of stuff like that. And, and, you know, and you're, you're just, you're working with your dad. Um, and so uh, it's fun. And I was always kind of, um, I always liked it. I mean, it's it, you know, scrapyards are cool places, um, especially for small kids. I don't recommend letting your child loose in the scrapyard. Um, but I mean, there's, there's equipment and there's stuff, you know, and small kids like stuff. So yeah, I loved it. Um, you know, and I, and I, I still, uh, I still like it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's exciting to hear. Um, before before we kind of dive into the world of, of recycling and reuse that we, we have now, I think you use the phrase uh, just right now of you know before the word before before there even was a word called recycling, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I want to talk about definitions and how would you define recycling? Um, I would define uh, recycling. I mean, you know, there's a lot of ways of doing it, but the simplest simplest uh, way of doing it is just to say that it's um, the repurposing of an old material into a new one. Um, and I think I would uh, I would stick with it that way, um, you know, and, and so, you know, for my upbringing, I mean, uh, the repurposing is somebody would bring in a, uh, 
you know, some plumber scrap, let's just say that. And plumber scrap is just, you know, old pipes and valves and that kind of thing. And our job as a scrapyard is to is to clean the metal, that is, separate the various kinds of metals um, into a, you know, at, at our place, buckets that would then be put into larger bins. Those bins would then be sold to um, uh, smelters who would melt that metal down um, into ingot more often than not and sell it to somebody who needs, you know, a certain kind of brass ingot that they can make into another valve or, uh, you know, whatever it might be. Great. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that's, that's fascinating. I think one thing that, and if you could maybe elaborate on this more is that the repurposing to go from first use of whatever the item is to, to the second life is quite the journey and it's one that's taken you all over the world. Correct? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I, I think it's, I, I love the blue bin, the green bin, whatever color bin it is. Um, the, the one problem with the bin and, and there's really, I don't think any solution to this is I think it makes it very simple for people to sort of just assume, Oh, you put, uh, you put the can in the bin and, uh, and it goes to green heaven and it's magically transformed into a, into a new can. And, and that's not the case. Even in the uh, simplest, shortest route to becoming a new, you know, aluminum can, um, you know, there's transportation involved. There's, you know, expenditure of energy. I mean, um, you know, making new aluminum is intensely energy intensive, um, but, but so is uh, recycling a can. It's just less energy intensive, um, you know, oftentimes the the nearest place to repurpose something is not in your neighborhood more often than not it isn't um you know it may be um on the other side of of the rocky mountains i mean i'm talking to you uh, you know you're in arizona and and a lot of the uh uh for cans you know aluminum cans most of the can mills are in uh, are are on on the other op on the opposite side of the uh, rocky mountains on the opposite side of the mississippi actually um so to get those cans repurposed you actually have to transport them a long way and in some cases um you know with some materials um it you know you you have to go overseas and and you know i know a lot of people object to that but you really have to think about why that's the case um, you know, and that comes down to, you know, what is repurposing? It's manufacturing. It's making something into something new. Um, if there is no manufacturing, if there's nobody who wants to make anything out of what's in your blue and green bin, um, it can't be recycled. And so where has manufacturing moved over the last, I guess you could say, 100 years? Um, it's moved overseas. Um, from the North America, if you will, there's still a lot of manufacturing in North America, but um, China, where I spent 12 years uh, reporting on recycling, um, you know, remains COVID or not the, recy the recycling, the recycling and manufacturing hub to the world. And so obviously um, your, your recycling is going to move there. And if you don't like it, you, you really should stop and ask, what would you rather they do? Would you rather they open open pit mines and clear cut forests to make the stuff that you and people all over the world are are using or would you rather that they use the stuff that you put in your blue and green bin and, and they get shipped over there so so it's a very complex uh world um, but ultimately to understand it you really just need to follow where the manufacturing happens yeah and i, I think one thing that i was so impressed reading your your book is that you literally follow it and, and i think uh you're probably one of the uh, the few they're leading thinkers or, or, or individuals in this world that knows and has seen almost the entire trip of so many different materials, both uh, starting in the U.S. and ending all over the world. 
has how did that you know you really uh, immersed yourself into this world i'd be curious to know if there are any kind of impressions or stories that come from that yeah i mean i was lucky um first of all i mean um journalism is a lot of luck i mean you you have to work and you'd find sources but you need to get lucky to to get that work and to find those sources and and i uh it's a long story but i i relocated into china in 2002 and at the time i was um uh, freelancing for Scrap Magazine, which was the uh, trade magazine run by the Institute of Scrap Recycling Industries. And in 2002, you know, we, you know, this story about, uh, you know, recycling moving across the Pacific wasn't very big, but it was with the recycling industry. Um, recyclers knew about it. They, uh, they knew that their best customers were, um, you know, at least their, a lot of their best customers were moving overseas. And so uh, I happened to be in China and um, Scrap Magazine asked me because they knew I had a background in the material. Say, can you, can you just do, you know, a couple short pieces just to show our members, the people, our, our subscribers, you know, where this stuff is going, what's being done with it. And so, and so that's, that's what I did. Um, it was an interesting time to be in China. Um, you know, sort of the Chinese manufacturing miracle was in full bloom at that point. It would remain so, um, you know, through my time there. Um, and I, you know, and and there wasn't anybody writing about it. So, you know, there's it's an interesting industry. Um, you know, the people who participate in the industry don't always like to be written about. Um, they just prefer to do what they do uh, quietly. Um, but but the scrap industry in China was quite keen to, you know, have people understand what they were doing, um, in part because they wanted more scrap metal and more scrap paper and more scrap plastic so they could make more, make more stuff to send back to North America. And so uh, I was there at the right time. I was the right writer at the right time, uh, able to tell the story. Um, and there were a lot of companies uh, who were thrilled to have me tell it for them, I guess you could say. They wanted to be, you know, people People don't open their factory gates uh, without a good reason. One of those good reasons is uh, they want the PR so maybe they can show somebody a magazine article somebody wrote about them and say, hey, we're a better person to send your scrap metal to than the guy down the street. And so um, a good journalist figures out how to leverage that interest in having people write about you. And, and that's what I did. Yeah, that's very interesting. I think one one thing you, you some of the stories that you do highlight and the factories that you do get to visit, one thing that shines through is is the fact that recycling and this was something that I didn't quite know going into it or maybe misconceived this is that recycling fundamentally is, is like an economic question, right? Can you can you repurpose a material that's cheaper than the the raw material um and then the market kind of lets it takes it care of itself is that would you say that's a fair assessment yeah it is i mean again it's, it's as i said to you earlier i mean um i look i'm i'm a committed environmentalist i'm a i'm a very committed conservationist on top of that i i care about the environment a lot so let me preface this by you know saying that um and then get into the economics of it but but you you're not going to get any of those good environmental outcomes related to recycling if somebody doesn't want to make something from the used stuff I mean, that's what it all comes down to. Um, if there's nobody, there's no factory that wants to make something from it and there's nobody who wants to buy it, it's not going to get recycled. Um, it's not recycling then. It is uh, it is garbage. I don't care what it is. Uh, you know, a, a pile of aluminum cans is usually something that's valuable. But if somebody doesn't want to buy those cans and melt them down and make something new from them, they're garbage. So, so that's sort of um, the defining characteristic for me. Now, uh, there's lots of nuance in there and things can, can change. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's why China exploded into what it 
is and, and was, it's slightly different now in terms of a recycling uh, hub. They, they wanted to make stuff and, uh, and factories in North America or Japan or Australia or Europe, they didn't. And so, yeah, the economics drove the whole thing. You know, it's changing a little bit um, uh, with plastics insofar as you now have, um, you know, consumer brands um, saying we want to use uh, recycled plastics, not because they're cheaper, but because our our uh, um, our customers, our consumers are demanding that we become more sustainable. And uh, if we're going to be more sustainable, then we need to use these materials, which are more expensive to us. But you could even in that sense, I mean, maybe it's not, uh, you know, the plus minus of the, the raw commodities. It's it's it becomes still market oriented. The market is demanding more sustainable materials. So um, and that's actually opening up opportunities for scrap plastics. And that was something that really wasn't happening uh, when when I was in China reporting on this. It's a very new phenomenon. Yeah, and let, let's speak to that. I think it's interesting that there's these market signals that are now pushing for more recycled content. Um, there's a lot of uh, controversy, I guess, a lot of reports about um, back and forth about whether or not even recite, you know, there's a recent report um, about whether or not recycling is even working at the right. global or macro level. And on the one hand, where we're recycling billions of tons of material every single year, but on the other hand, fractionally, a lot of it is still going to landfill. So how, how do you reconcile the two? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, well, let me preface this by saying, uh, you know, people really want recycling to be a black and white issue, you know, or or black and green, you know, bad for the environment, good for the environment. And the simple fact of the matter is, is that um, recycling exists in the gray, um, you know, uh, because it's a raw material and it's not for free. I mean, you are still going to have, it's still an industrial process to recycle anything. Paper recycling, people seem to prefer paper um, to plastic um, for their packaging. But I can tell you, I've seen some really hideous paper recycling plants over the years and, and, uh, and, you know, it just, it just depends. So, so um, let me preface it by saying that, you know, we're, we're talking about something that uh, exists in a gray zone. Um, that said, um, you know, in, in terms of the current market dynamics, first of all, you know, you really need to talk about which plastic plastics, you know, um, because plastics recycling tends to get thrown in. Plastics recycling doesn't work, but that's not true. Um, if we start talking about PET, um, which is the stuff that we, that's, you know, water bottles, um, there's a huge market for that. And there's, and there's lots of recycling of that into lots of different materials. Um, you know, uh, something that does exist and that happens every day is so-called bottle to bottle recycling, which is just what it sounds like. You're taking um, old water bottles, shredding them and melting them down into new water bottles. That's a real process. And, and I mean, there are billions of bottles uh, manufactured that way every year. Likewise, um, there's a lot of uh, recycling of PT bottles into carpeting, into uh, uh, clothing. And in fact, if you if you buy clothing uh, where they talk about recycled content in it, it's almost certainly because they're using uh, PET um, from old water bottles. Um, now, why are people saying that there isn't, uh, that there's a lot of stuff going to the landfill? Well, one reason is, is that it's very expensive to build a PET plant and it takes time. And so uh, right now, uh, there's a shortage of PET plants. Um, so people say, well, all this uh, PET is going to the landfill. That's true. It's going to the landfill because there's not enough PET plants to fulfill all the demand from consumer brands right now that want to recycle it. So when people start telling me, well, we got to stop this plastic recycling thing, well, it, you know, these brands want to use it. 
And the 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 real the bottleneck right now is they're they're trying to you know increase the amount of capacity out there. It takes time to build factories. That's also the case with uh, resins like HDPE, uh, which uh, you think of as a laundry detergent bottle. Um, but there are also resins where the markets are smaller. Uh, things like polypropylene uh, yogurt tubs. But that is growing as well. Um, what I I try to encourage people to do when they think about this topic is you know is understand that it's going to take time. The demand for these materials is only coming online right now. The example that I always give uh, is one that I wrote about in Junkyard Planet, which is the automobile. People forget that in the early 1960s in the United States, the automobile was one of the most significant environmental hazards out there. Not automobiles on the roads, or those were issues too, but actual junk automobiles, because there was no recycling solution for automobiles beyond setting them on fire. Um, and then you could get the metals out of them. It wasn't until right around the late 2000s, um, after the development of shredding machines in the early 1960s, so 50 years, uh, it wasn't in, for 50 years that we were actually able to get a roughly 100% recycling rate for automobiles. Um, I think it's going to happen much more quickly with plastics. I don't think it'll ever be 100%, but I think you're going to see a much higher rate within the next decade. You know What that will be, I don't know, but uh, you know this the technology is coming online now and really Really, for the brands that want to use these recycled plastics, it can't happen soon enough. Yeah, well, that's actually very uplifting. Do you, do you think that applies to, uh, you know, we focus on very particular types of plastics and, and we keep making up new numbers for new plastic types. And uh, Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard. I mean, um, you know, there's there there are some plastics are much easier. I mean, the PET market, you know, which is the number ones. I mean, that's there, and and you're going to see that number continue to go up. You know, um, you know, from I think right now, gosh, I want to say, I shouldn't say, but I, I well, I want to say somewhere around one third of the PET in North America is recycled. You know, the interesting thing is that you know if you go to emerging markets where it's much cheaper to sort and collect this stuff, you'll see actually much higher recycling rates. You know, we always think of the emerging markets as having lower recycling rates, but actual emerging markets have much higher recycling rates. It's when people get rich and have a lot more waste and they don't need to make a living selling their bottles and cans and, and newspapers and cardboard boxes that you get the lower recycling rates. That's that's a different story altogether. But there's going to be different plastics that have different rates. And I think, um, you know, where we get these the sort of anti-plastics fervor that's so big right now is it's, you know, it's sort of trying to set off a nuclear bomb to, to uh, you know, instead of using a mousetrap, maybe you need something bigger than a mousetrap, but there are just different resins that um, are recycled at much higher rates. And we want to continue recycling those. It's, it's crazy not to, because plastic is not going to go away. So you really have to ask yourself. And when I talk to groups about recycling, I, I really do like to uh, reorient the discussion. It's not recycling or not, it's recycling or virgin materials, because people are going to consume stuff. You know, I know you're a big advocate of zero waste, but you also know consumption is going to happen. There, people are going to buy new stuff. Um, so what do you want the base of that to be? And I think that's what's really exciting about the innovations happening in plastic recycling um, right now. You know, nothing is perfect, but uh, it's coming along. That's a great point. And, and you bring up the uh, I remember you, you had a very poignant uh, story or, or chapter where you you discuss you, you were back in Minnesota. You're looking at some forest that maybe is being evaluated to to be basically mined for yeah. materials that could be recycled and so that that really is a, a, a important distinction to highlight is that it's recycling is also mitigating uh you know extraction and mining of, yeah. of resources yeah 
Yeah, exactly. That was that took place um, on the edge of the Boundary Water uh, Federal uh, Boundary Water Canoe uh, Federal Wilderness, which is a is a marvelous um, you know wilderness up in northern Minnesota. Um, and there's been pressure for quite a few years to open um, non-ferrous mining up there, which which will have an impact on those those gorgeous landscapes. So um, you know I, the truth is, and this is a painful truth for people: recycling will never replace. Um, uh, the need for virgin materials. Um, you know, there's there's loss in every recycling process. I don't care what it is, uh, plastics, metals, paper. You will, you do lose a little bit um, every every time you recycle something. Um, but yeah, I guess you can say um, recycling certainly takes the edge off that loss. And um, and yeah, I I mean it's it is uh, you know if you create these markets like like you see these brands, um, these big brands, the consumer brands doing with, um, with plastics, uh, you really do uh, reduce the amount of, of stress you put on our natural environment for new materials. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm curious, the, what, I, the, I know this, um, what we've been discussing, at least the state of, you know, your time you were in, you were in China. What years were you in China? Remind me. Uh, 2002 to 2014. Okay. And so around, you know, in a few years after that, there was a fairly significant rupture in the market where, where China decided to basically stop the imports of a lot of basic, basically potentially recyclables because they were too contaminated, right? Can you just speak to that and how that's impacted the global markets and such? Sure, sure. Well, China, even, you know, before uh, that's uh, National Sword is what that was called. Even before National Sword, it used to happen about every 18 months, they would um, they would stop uh, the import. Uh, well, they wouldn't stop it. What they would do is there would be, um, you know, a sort of an action at the ports inspecting all of these cargoes. And, and you know, they would very much put it uh, in the context of this is an environmental uh, crackdown. But what it really was, was um, it was a tax crackdown, uh, those ones preceding a uh, national sword, um, meaning uh, there was a lot of tax cheating. You know, you pay, uh, you pay a duty when you import scrap metal and, and the manufacturers and the recyclers were cheating on their taxes regularly. That was one of the ways you profited off scrap metal back in those days. So they would shut down the ports. But in the midst of these these shutdowns every 18 months, as far back as like uh, 2010, there was talk that China would eventually stop doing this, um, allowing the import of most recyclables. And and there were there were really um, uh, there's really one reason that they were going to do it, and that is that they wanted to be self-sufficient in raw materials. Um, and if you look at China in a much broader context than recycling, you know that's not surprising. They want to be the Communist Party wants to be self-sufficient um, in as many um, basic commodities as it can be: food, um, you know, oil, uh, you know, metals, um, rare earths, all of these things. And so there was the belief, and it it turned out to be somewhat correct is that as China became more wealthy, as it developed a consumer class, that consumer class would be generating uh, more and more recycling of its own. Um, uh, China's factories would be generating more and more waste and recycling of its own. And there would be less reason for China uh, to import um, uh, recyclables from around the world, uh, from Japan, from you know, all over. I mean, China report. You know, people think they just import from Europe and, and and the United States, but they were they were at the peak of this, uh, and to this day, they they you know it's 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 dozens of countries that they will be importing these materials from. Um, so uh, what happened around two thousand? Uh, 
I think the announcement was in 2007, late 2007, 2008, or uh, 2017, 2018, sorry, 2017, 2018, they're going to be stopping this. And they, they went to the uh, WTO and they were very clever about it because if they just stop it and say, oh, we're stopping this because we want to protect our, our own recyclers and we have enough of this and we don't want to import it any further, um, they'd be in violation of the WTOs. But they instead cast it very much as this is an environmental problem for us and, and we want to stop it for that reason. And so that's what they did. Um, and uh, it didn't go particularly well for them either. You know, We know it caused a lot of problems for North American recyclers um, because China had been a, an extremely important um, consumer for them. But it also became, it became a very big problem for uh, Chinese manufacturers who had uh, become dependent upon these materials um, to make uh, stuff. You know that they sent back to us. So um, I, the example I think of when it first uh, happened uh, is cardboard. Um, you know, cardboard factories are are interesting places. They use kind of a recipe, um, and uh, you know, and so they may use a recipe. And I, this, I'm just throwing this out there, but it would be say. Uh, 60% recycled cardboard from North America, which is considered very high quality recycled cardboard, 20% local Chinese cardboard, which is, which the quality just isn't as good. And then, um, uh, what, and then 20% virgin um, pulp. And that would be the formula that this mill was designed to use. And suddenly they don't have access to that high quality cardboard to make the cardboard they need to say, supply a shoe factory. So what they started doing when they couldn't get the high quality North American, uh, uh, cardboard is they started um, uh, they started importing and using virgin cardboard uh, to make new cardboard because they just couldn't run without a certain kind of high quality cardboard. Um, you know, so again, it sort of gets to the point that for for China, this wasn't about the environmental issue. They they really were trying to uh, fix um, what they saw as an over dependence on foreign sources of raw materials, and. Um, and so it, it 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 complicated things, and it continues to complicate things. And and you know it's also interesting. You know, in the last few years, China has actually um, eased up on some of those import restrictions um, because they they now realize that their manufacturers do not have local sources for these 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 raw materials. And so you do have some exporting, especially in the metals area of of uh, of scrap metals uh, to China again from from North America just because they need it. Fascinating. So there's been almost a slight recalibration. So they, oh, they, yeah. They, oh, definitely. Oh, definitely. Okay. Interesting. Well, obviously, as you mentioned, you know, recycling plants don't get built quickly. So this is probably still something that needs to get worked out. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, very cool. I want to I want to shift gears a little bit. So you uh, obviously came out uh, with a, a second book um, called Secondhand Travels in the New Global Garage Sale. And it really uh, takes a look. You kind of follow the the routes. You follow the the world the world of, of secondhand and reuse as opposed to recycling. Can you just speak to the motivation for for exploring this world? Um, yeah, I mean, it was um, it was a few things. Um, one, you know, right around the time that we saw um, uh, China's um, national sword happening, I, I started thinking a little bit about, you know, what other options are there beyond recycling? You know, is there is there the possibility of repurposing goods as goods, you know, reusing them, fixing them, repairing them? And I had written about that for a while. Um, 
I, I also uh, had just spent some time in uh, West Africa, um, seeing how uh, stuff is repurposed there, which was uh, really interesting uh, for me, um, seeing those repurposing markets. And they reminded me what had happened to Chi in China with repurposing. Back when China was a um, was a less affluent place, there was a lot more repurposing. And then it just sort of gets back to my roots. I mean, I have very early memories of of attending, of going to uh, garage sales with my grandmother, who's um, I was very close to was sort of a uh, a mentor to me in 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 the scrapyard. Mentors maybe not the right term, but you know she certainly um, spent a lot of time with me in the yard. So looking at stuff in terms of of what its value is and in terms of it being reusable as it is, maybe people drop something off because they don't want to fix it anymore or it's just not fashionable. So we spent she and I spent a lot of time thinking and talking about that kind of thing. Uh, so I I started thinking about uh, doing a book along those lines. Interesting. And, and, uh, what were, uh, I guess the, was it similar? Was it a similar world to you or was it completely? Um, that's a great question. Um, yes and no. Um, you know, um, I say this, uh, in the most loving sense, the world of scavengers is one I'm very comfortable with. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's my family, you know, those are my people. And, um, and uh, yeah, so, you know, I relate to the people similarly, um, you know, um, it's changing in some ways, you know, um, it's becoming more corporatized, um, you know, it's becoming uh, something that's quite fashionable, um, uh, you know, you know, especially in, uh, in, in affluent countries to be using secondhand stuff. Um, so, but in, in many respects, it's, it's just the same. I mean, uh, for me, it's, it's people who are looking um, to at arbit stuff arbitrage, if you will, looking for ways uh, to make money off something that somebody else doesn't see value in. One of the chapters in the book is called A Rich Man's Broken Thing. And, um, and that's a phrase from uh, Robin Ingenthron, one of the characters. He's, well, he's not just a character. He's, one of, he's a real person in the book. And Robin uh, said that was a phrase that his grandfather used uh, with him when uh, when buying used cars back in the day, 50 years ago. You know, they would... They would uh, they would look for a car that was broken down and the rich man didn't want to worry about it. So they would buy it, fix it. And, and it's sort of arbitrage. They created something out of value. So, so that to me is um, the motivation for doing a lot of recycling is it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's stuff arbitrage. And, uh, and, and so it was familiar to me. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And, and it sounds like you, um, you, I think one of the insights that you had is that it's actually a very sophisticated or market in some way that you you, um, you followed. Uh, I guess you really learned a lot about Goodwill, one of the largest reusers in, in the US and that it really very sophisticated way of evaluating products, essentially the inputs and then finding places to repurpose them, correct? Yeah, I mean, uh, I spent, I, I sort of embedded at the uh, Goodwill of Southern Arizona uh, down in Tucson for a while. And, and I wanted to see how they... Uh, how they create value out of all those donations they get. And, and it's fascinating. I mean, it's sophisticated from the moment it enters the door and it's sorted into various bins to be sorted later, um, you know, for stuff on the floor. If it doesn't sell on the floor, they have outlets, they have um, like discount outlets for the stuff where you can buy it by the, uh, by the pound. Uh, it can be sorted for export. It can be sorted for uh, different types of, of recycling. If it's textiles, um, you know, and it goes all over the world. And, and the thing is, I think the one thing you need to be careful of, uh, and I, I always remind myself is, 
you know, I think in North America, in a rich country, like in a rich region, rich country like the United States, you know, we tend to think of ourselves as pushing this stuff out. You know, we always hear people talk about exporting waste, but waste is not exported. Reusables are not exported. Um, they are imported. Somebody has to buy them. You don't just put stuff on a container in a shipping container and spend thousands of dollars to ship it to an emerging market and dump it there. That makes no economic sense. And it doesn't, it not only doesn't make economic sense, you can actually go and look at all the shipping documents for this stuff and it's been paid for it hits the water paid for somebody's paying for the goods and the shipping of it to bring it they're importing it there's an importer and so um it was interesting to see um you know goodwill and 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 sort of the thrift market um you know encounter that uh th those um that demand side you know and, and for southern arizona for tucson a lot of that demand is coming um uh, from Mexico and from Central America. And uh, a very large percentage of the stuff that they put on their shelves if, uh, it flows into Mexico, where it supplies people uh, with secondhand goods who can't afford new in Mexico. Um, if there was no Mexico, uh, uh, you know, a Goodwill of Southern Arizona would be in a lot of trouble. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's, that's, it's just, it's a very complex world. And is that the so let's think from the perspective of the importer, the the the, the importer, the reason they are interested in these materials, it, is it purely that it's a lower price point than a, a new product? And so that's that's the one they can afford. And so that's what they're looking for. Well, that's one part of it. That's a big part of it. Um, but it's it's not the only one. I mean, um, you know, the other the other side of it is, um, you know, we all know, uh, you know, South Asian, um, Southeast Asian. Um, textiles and apparel uh, has become a global economic force. Um, and, and, you know, they've displaced, you know, uh, textile manufacturers in North America and Africa. Um, and one of the reasons they've, ways they've done it is by lowering prices and how they achieve those lower prices is via lower quality materials and, and workmanship. And so um, one of the things you find with um, uh, consumers and importers in the developing world is they're looking at stuff that's made in North America um, uh, it, because it's it's believed to be of higher quality. It's used in North America, um, and it's sort of massively uh, pre-tested. And the people who sort these materials, um, the organizations that sort these materials, you know, they're not going to put the cheapest textiles on on the boat very often. Sometimes they will, but the, you have to look at it from the point of view of the importer. If, if you send the importer a bunch of really low quality stuff, they're not going to import it anymore. You've lost a customer. So um, the markets tend to work pretty well. Um, you know, uh, certainly there's uh, certainly there are gaps, but. But um, yeah, that's that's kind of how it works. So it's it's an interesting quality, massive pre-testing, if you will, and and the price point. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, that I, I wouldn't have thought that the that the the pre-testing, as in like the use, the previous use of something, is actually validation that it. Oh that it yeah, works. yeah, and you know it's it, it's interesting. Like if you if you go and talk, I spent a bunch of time in Ghana and Benin in West Africa, and if you talk to the people there who import and sell. Um, the uh, the the clothes that are most valued in in the global um, secondhand apparel trade are are Canadian clothes and and I kept hearing that people would ask me if I knew where I could where where to get Canadian clothes maybe I could help them get Canadian clothes why Canadian clothes well it's a it's a cold weather region and that means that um, 
you know, your summer clothes, your spring clothes aren't worn very much. Um, you know, they're not worn down very much either. Um, and so as a result, um, you know, they're, they're kind of, they're valued for that. They haven't been through the wash as many times. Um, you know, clothes from Scandinavia, uh, summer clothes from Scandinavia are valued for the same reason. And of course it also fits into another market dynamic, which is that, um, your, you know, the, the biggest markets for secondhand clothes globally are in these warmer weather uh, climates. Um, so that's, um, that's also a, a factor that fits in, but yeah, uh, uh, you know, less worn and, and better quality and Canada's an affluent country. Um, and so it's one of the reasons why people really value those clothes. Yeah, that's a great answer. I'm sure then if, if they were getting more granular, they'd probably want more more clothes from Minnesota than from uh, the southern part of the U.S. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's absolutely right. And in fact, uh, it's one of the things that you actually see in the sorting warehouses for this. Um, you know, there's there's um, big consolidators of, of used clothing. So meaning, um, you know, businesses that will buy from, you know, dozens of Goodwill stores around the country. Um, and when they when they when they buy they're very not you know very aware of the fact that if they're buying you know clothes from Arizona um you know um that the the quality isn't going to be as good um for what's wanted in these overseas markets that's interesting um you you've mentioned this a few times and i, I want to explore this a little bit the the relationship between affluence and and I guess recycling and reuse. You you made a comment about some of these emerging markets actually may have higher recycling rates. Sure. Oh, they do. Yeah. I mean, I mean, maybe can you just elaborate on that and just explore what are the fundamentals? What's driving this? Yeah. I mean, uh, part of it is um, people will reuse stuff um, more, and you know, if you if you don't have much, you're going to use and reuse your stuff. I mean, uh, it yeah, it's funny. I remember uh, spending time in in Tamale, Ghana, and um, you know, there were, um, all kinds of businesses, um, you know, in the center of Tamale, Ghana, who for very, uh, little money, you know, would, um, you know, do engine work on your car, the kind of engine work that would cost thousands of dollars in the States. It would be very cheap there and people would do it regularly. Um, you know, because why, why would people pay for that kind of work? Well, you know, they, they don't have a lot of money, so they need to keep repurposing this stuff. Um, it, you know, it's, it, that's, that's what it is. And um, I, you know, I had the privilege of living in China during sort of the frothiest years of its boom. And it was interesting to watch um, how the used computer markets there, there, there used to be um, really big used computer markets. They were like superstores, used computer superstores is how I, I used to think of them. And uh, only they were filled with imported computers from, from, um, around uh, uh well around the affluent world they'd come in from europe and north america and japan um and uh and people would buy them those are gone now uh china has more money uh people want to have new computers um so there's that side of it um you get more repurposing in terms of of, of the recycling side of the equation um you know in emerging markets uh i saw it in china and i wrote about this in junkyard planet i mean the the people who would um collect recycling in at my apartment complex were not the uh it was not the the city these were just independent people with carts they'd pull around backpacks they'd go into the garbage and fill fill up the uh uh, their packs with stuff that they could sell to a recycling plant. And, uh, you know, and, and, but that's, there's less and less of that now because they have other job options. And as they've developed other job options, 
um, you know, the city, for instance, Shanghai uh, now has a municipal uh, recycling program, and they've, they've really spent a lot of money on education and, and the infrastructure for doing it. So, um, you know, it's a rich man's broken thing. Um, you know, uh, if you have other things to do, you're not going to spend your time um, sorting through other people's trash and recycling. But, but if you don't have employment opportunity, if you're a migrant from uh, Hunan province, which is which was is somewhat a uh, poor province in China. Um, maybe you're willing to do that kind of work. You know, the Shanghainese these days are are certainly not. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, that it, the the phrase the the rich man's broken thing, and I'm wondering, you know, as you alluded to, repurposing and recycling fundamentally reduces the demand on virgin resources, right? So, from an environmental perspective, we we the, the thesis is that it's better. And yet I'm trying to think, you know, is, if I were to try to, I don't, in, in, you know, living here in, in the U S I don't know if I would actually know where to repair some of these things, even if I wanted to. Right. So should there be some policy or signal that yes, maybe, you know, we are generally more affluent and we produce a lot of broken things, but is there a way to minimize that? Um, you know, I'm, I'm a big advocate of, of right to repair legislation. Um, because right now, you know, we do have uh, it's, you know, there's there's a company that the company that I, I often bring up is Apple and 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 the iPhone, you know, before the iPhone, it was um, really relatively easy to switch out a battery in your feature phone. I, you know, you've had a, a little handheld Motorola back before the smartphone um, and it was running low on juice. Um, you would just, you know, take the extra battery you carry around and, and put it in the back. Or, or you know, if you didn't have one, you go and buy one. It was relatively inexpensive. Um, you know, Apple sort of changed that um, that paradigm, if you will, uh, with the iPhone. A couple uh, models into the iPhone, they basically sealed up the iPhone, and it became this mysterious black box, this very beautiful black box. Um, but it um, it also became difficult to open your iPhone and switch out the battery. What had been really simple, just slide off the back and pop something in and out. Uh, it, they now required um, that you have a screwdriver to do it and you would need perhaps other tools. And, and it's gotten to the point that, um, you know, with these last uh, really uh, starting around, I think it was around the iPhone seven, it really, it became very, very difficult for somebody to do that at home, which is which sounds absurd. You know, when you think it wasn't that long ago, we were all switching out those batteries uh, by ourselves. Um, what makes it hard? Um, you know, they at one time they had proprietary screws to open it up. Um, you know, there were just different pieces that needed to be folded over. Um, they've made it even increasingly difficult because now they have hardware um sort of uh, maybe lock isn't the right term but you know if you go you can if you say you want to uh replace an iphone 13 and iphone 14 um battery these days um you not only replace the battery but then you need to do a software reset on it otherwise the the screen will not uh show the same colors as somebody who has one done by a dealership or uh recently apple has started um ask, allowing you to basically um ha uh purchase the or purchase a repair on your own they'll send you the equipment to do the software reset at home um and it's you know you need to put down over a thousand dollar deposit i think to get the equipment to do it at home so it's ridiculous nobody's going to do that you know what i mean um so i think uh i think legislation uh right to repair legislation is a good start and what right to repair legislation there's a few different versions of it but it basically it has two components one is that if there are any um 
you know, if, if, if it basically, it means that a manufacturer, if it offers parts to an authorized service provider, it also must author, uh, offer them to you, um, tools as well as a consumer at a reasonable price. And those would include, uh, software tools. So the idea is it just, it, it, it becomes a, uh, it becomes an incentive for manufacturers not to do that kind of thing. Um, but I also think there's market signals out there um, that just will get people doing it on their own. I, I wrote about a, a you know a, a a laundry machine brand uh, in secondhand, uh, Speed Queen, which is owned by uh, the world's largest laundry manufacturer, uh, Alliance Laundry System. Speed Queen is is a um, is a you know is a is a washing machine and it's a washing machine that's like the old style washing machines that used to last 25 years well it's more expensive why would people want to wash pay more for a washing machine that lasts 25 years well that's precisely why you know they're tired of the washing machines that break down uh after three years but which cost maybe you know 30 percent less so um i think there is there are market signals and there are surveys out there suggesting that people are, are sort of get growing tired uh, some people are growing tired. Affl some affluent people are growing tired of these uh, these sort of disposable items out there. So that might be uh, that might to some extent take care of itself as well. Yeah, and it, it's I'm glad you you bring up Speed Queen because it it it, it one theme that that um, came across is that a lot more and more these products in some ways have a designed failure or planned obsolescence in them. Right. And that there's, you know, they're not robust. They're not meant to last 25 years. And so they keep breaking down. Right. Well, exactly. And, um, you know, you can think of, um, I mean, you, you can think of, you know, a lot of electronics. I mean, uh, uh, you know, never mind the washing machines, but I think, you know, a lot of us have owned phones where um, suddenly there is no more software support. So what do you what do you do? I mean, you can continue using the old operating system, but you now know it's insecure. Um, you know, I'm not sure that we want to have legislation necessarily that requires uh, manufacturers to maintain phone software in perpetuity. But it does get you thinking that perhaps it, it, the manufacturers can make more effort on on supporting uh, creating products that don't need that extended kind of support. So there's there's just um, there's just a lot of examples of, of how of how sort of disposability has infected, if you will, even products that, you know, we wouldn't think of as disposable years ago. I mean, the idea, you know, my grandmother, even my father uh, buying something that cost twelve hundred dollars with the idea that they're only going to use it for a few years. I mean, it's, it wasn't it wasn't how it used to be. So um, but it, it will take a shift in consumer mindset. Interesting. So you see that you see that more as coming from the consumers pushing for that. I think I think that's going to be very important. Um, I, I you know I think you know again the uh, the you know government can can ask manufacturers to you know guarantee uh, a consumer's right to repair their stuff, but ultimately uh, consumers are going to need to ask for better stuff. You know, and and one of the problems, I don't know if it's a problem. I mean, it's also a good thing. I mean, I, you know, I, I've lived in emerging markets for 20 years and and I, I love seeing people improve their living standards. I think it's great. And one of the ways they improve their living standards is they have access to low cost goods. Um, so it's it's hard. I mean, it's easy for us in North America to sit around and say, oh, well, you know, it's terrible. Uh, people are buying all this cheap stuff. Well, you know, that cheap stuff also um, helps people achieve higher uh, higher standards of living. But, you know, hopefully there's a, there's a medium there. I, you know, I think it's going to require different, um, 
consumer models. I think one of the things we're going to see more and more of with electronics, uh, especially in developed countries, but I think it'll ultimately go to uh, emerging markets is we'll see more rental models. Um, and if you're, if you're renting and leasing uh, different kinds of products, electronics, um, then you're, you know, there's an incentive on the parts of the manufacturers to make more durable ones because uh, presumably they want to get into the business of renting them. And in fact, there are rumors, um, pretty good rumors, um, the Apple has been looking at leasing models for its its businesses for a while. So shifting away from selling, selling the phones to leasing them for a year and then cycle them through other consumers and markets. And that would be one way to sort of encourage the development of these, these better quality items. That's interesting. Yeah, we actually um, uh, had someone who um, was on the show earlier a couple of seasons ago that was uh, developing a, a lease or rental model for, for jeans, for textiles. There you go. Yeah. That's exciting. Um, interesting. So the, uh, you've explored the world of, of recycle and then the world of, of reuse. Uh, I'm just thinking of reduce, reuse, recycle is what, what do you, is there a, a next book coming out in reduce? <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, I'm sort of in the early stages of it. I'm going to do, um, I'm going to do the third book and, and, you know, I never thought of this as a trilogy. <laughs> it was not the plan when I wrote Junkyard Planet. Um, I think there's going to be a trilogy of sorts and, and there will be a reuse component uh, to it. I'm not prepared to say what it is yet. The idea is there uh, and and I'm pretty close to starting it, but but there will. And, and ultimately, yeah, I, I think if you really want to tackle these issues, um, it really does come down to a reduction, consumer you know, consumption reduction. Um, you know, I think recycling and repurposing is great and there should be more and more of it. Um, but I mean, ultimately, if you want to get at the issues uh, that, you know, consumption voice upon us, you've got to reduce that consumption. So that's what I'll be looking at and in, in, in hopefully in, in a slightly different framework. I can't say much about it. No, that's great. I love that. I love the cliffhanger. We're all, we're all going to be on the edge of our seats waiting for this. <laughs> so um, yeah, that's great. And so I guess maybe just uh, in, as we're, as we're coming to a close, what, you know, what, uh, what do you see as the, the state of, of, you know, this, this can be broad, whether recycling or reuse, what do you see happening over the next five years? Do you, you see kind of a status quo, some big disruptions? What, what do you envision? Um, you know, I think, you know, at least in terms of uh, materials, I think you're going to see a lot more material types, especially in the plastics, being recycled and being able to be recycled so long as we don't uh, get um, regulations that's, that, that try to shut them down. But we're going to see the yogurt tubs being recycled. Um, there's some some pretty amazing companies out there doing, you know, uh, launching. And, and I mean, this isn't just speculation. I mean, they're building the plants now, um, you know, to, to handle some of these what are called mixed plastics. So I think you're going to see a lot more plastics recycling. And, you know, so long as uh, the product manufacturers um, are uh, are interested in using sustainable materials and consumers are interested in having sustainable materials, um, then I think we'll see those kinds of materials grow, um, you know, as part of our consumer supply chain. And I think that's, uh, that's really exciting. Um, you know, I think I'll, I'll probably hold the line at that. I just think there's going to be more options to recycle more types of materials. And I think that's great. That is great. That makes me feel, um, it is exciting. It's motivating. It makes me feel a lot better about eating my yogurt containers now. There you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, Adam, thank you very much for your time. Uh, really appreciate. It. Very, very. I yeah. I very insightful. I learned a lot, and I look forward to whatever comes out next. Well, great. Well, thanks. And and reduce, reduce, reduce. That's the key. Absolutely. 
everyone. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Um, it was, uh, I, I mean, I really enjoyed it. Just participating in the conversation. Adam is super uh, knowledgeable and really great stories, uh, both from his upbringing and then also just being able to see some of these actual factories that some people probably have never seen in terms of how recycling actually happens uh, and where the material goes. It doesn't just go to, as he says, it doesn't go to recycling heaven. There, there's a lot of effort and and um, and, and sophistication that gets to uh, having a material be reused and recycled. So in that spirit, he, you know, he, he closed with reduce, reduce, reduce. I think super important, obviously the goal for this, for, for, for the podcast in general is to, to promote uh, the reduction of, of reuse and recycling and, and, and reduction in, in demand of virgin resources. And that's something that recycling can offer. So hope you enjoyed it. Uh, for the uh, upcoming season, the, uh, the theme that I've decided upon, and I'm really excited is going to be um, looking at communities and individuals that have been working on trying to push back against uh, extractivist fossil fuel projects. And so if you think about one thing I was reflecting on is that obviously in terms of zero waste and circular economy, a lot of the focus of the last couple of episodes or seasons, excuse me, has been on reusing or reducing um, or, you know, materials that have already entered into this flow of, 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 of the economy. Um, but obviously it comes from somewhere and it starts from somewhere. And typically a lot of it requires energy. Uh, a lot of those, that, those materials need to be extracted or mined. Um, and so I tried to focus a little bit upstream of, of what I typically have over the last couple of seasons and really think about what is, what is happening at the point of extracting things like coal, um, oil, other fossil fuels that are at this point very integral to our to a society, but what does that mean for the communities that are actually involved in those locations? And so uh, we explore that over the course of uh, the season and uh, talking to people from from different backgrounds. Uh, it's really uh, I think interesting in how they've approached uh, proposed projects for fossil fuel projects in, in their communities and how they've approached and viewed that. So um, that's the the theme for season three coming out shortly. As I mentioned, the episodes are uh, at this point have been mostly recorded and I'm now working on uh, editing them, putting them together and, and, and publishing them. So keep um, you'll uh, definitely follow along. You can either follow along either through the actual um, podcast websites or through our the social media accounts that I've now created. Again, it's zero podcast zero uh, and uh, looking forward to hearing from what you have to say. Thanks and have a good one.